and welcome to the September edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave and coming up... I'm Kate Fulton and I'll be speaking to comedian Ashley Blaker about appearing in person for the first time since the COVID-19 lockdown at JW3. I'm Tony Honigberg and I'll be looking into the Jewish Museum's exhibition Your Legacy and Me, which explores the legacy of the Holocaust. I'm John Kay, and I'll be finding out how three siblings who lost their parents in that horrific accident are marking the 10th anniversary of their passing by raising money to help others. I'm Clive Roslin, and I'll be hearing about an extraordinary story about a family reunion like no other. As we hurtle towards the high holy days, yes, I know, they're nearly upon us again, Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips will be offering us some delicious advice a little later on. And we'll also have our rabbinic thought for the month, courtesy of Rabbi Charlie Beginsky from Liberal Judaism. But before all that, with a roundup of the main Jewish news stories for the past month, I'm Vivian Krieger. And Israel and the United Arab Emirates have announced what's being called the normalization of relations between them. In return, Israel will not declare sovereignty over the West Bank and Jordan Valley, meaning further annexation of land has been called off. The three-way statement with the United States took political analysts by surprise. It heralds a new era of diplomatic and economic connections between Jerusalem and the Gulf states. The Acorn Union, the anti-poverty group which helps tenants and renters, has had to apologise to the Jewish community after a person attempting to join its Manchester branch was sent two Instagram messages saying, no time for Zionists and we are a pro-Palestine organisation. The man in question is Jewish and told the JLM which promptly challenged Acorn. The union said it hadn't yet identified the person who sent the messages. In the United States, a medical board has permanently revoked the medical training certificate of a doctor who was sacked after old anti-Semitic tweets resurfaced, including one in which he threatened to give Jews the wrong medication. Lara Kolab can never practice osteopathic medicine or surgery in the state of Ohio. Kolab wrote scores of anti-Semitic social media posts between 2011 and 2013, but deleted them after being accepted by a New York College of Osteopathic Medicine. The impact on synagogues of extending London's congestion charge to Sundays has been raised with the Mayor of London's office. Sadiq Khan put the charge up to £15 in June and extended it to evenings and weekends, leading synagogues in the area to fear a reduction in Cheder attendance when classes resume. A meeting was organised by the London Jewish Forum with Heidi Alexander, who's the deputy mayor in charge of transport, to discuss the issue. Amid all the controversy surrounding the government's exams grading system, one boy from Bushy, who's just nine years old, was actually able to sit his GCSE foundation maths. Rafi Ashkenazi-Bakes earned the top grade, even though he's only going into year five when schools reopen. He sat three online papers in the summer after enrolling as a private candidate. His mother said she was super proud. And finally, 53 descendants of two families who moved from a Polish shtetl to South Wales in the 1820s have been reunited on Zoom. Joel Levy, a dentist based in Bushy, united members of the families of his great-great-great-great-grandparents' five children for the first time as they dispersed around the world. Those taking part called in from as far afield as America's West Coast, South Africa and Perth in Australia. The oldest was 94. 
And we'll be finding out more about this when we speak to Joel Levy later in the show. Viv, thank you very much. You're listening to The Jewish Views, an association with JW3. Now, it was back in March that our beloved JW3, like so many places, had to close its doors to the public due to the COVID-19 outbreak. And since then, there have been many different activities taking place online. But let's be honest, it's not quite the same as seeing a performance in person. Well, now, six long months later, you can. Comedian Ashley Blaker will be live in person and in front of the audience for the first time since lockdown began at JW3. Now, you'll have to be quick. Both performances are on the 6th of September. But even if you missed the chance this time, we think it's important to let you know that there are signs of normality starting to creep back in. Ashley Baker joins me now. Ashley, welcome. And Hello. tell us, what, hi, what have you been up to during la- lockdown? I thought you nearly said letdown, which is probably more. <laughs> Not lockdown, similar, similar though. Yes, that would be Sunday night, the letdown. <laughs> lockdown, I've gone from a lockdown to a letdown. What have I been doing? God, it just feels so long. It's kind of. Do you sort like, of do you spend the said, time sort of writing? Because I mean, it must be people. I've are been doing all kinds of things. No, but I've been doing all kinds of things. It hasn't felt, in a way, like uh, it's gone on so long. It doesn't really feel like a kind of period of what did you do? I just life has carried on. I've been working, you, developing you, things. Yeah. Some performing online. I've got a new Radio Four series coming out, so I've got to write that four new hours of stand-up. It's, it's, so, yeah, it's, life just continues. I mean, you performed for US audiences, for British audiences, everywhere, other audiences, and no audience. What's that like? I mean, how, how do you kind of keep your own momentum I, when there's nobody in front oh, of you to kind of give you a bit of feedback? I love it. I love it. <laughs> I love it. I don't want to go in front of an audience again. I'm dreading Sunday night. I just love being like, yeah, why perform in front of an audience? Well, I was going to say perform in front of an audience perform in front of a Jewish audience. I mean, Jews, I perform for Jews all around the world, not only for Jews, but a lot of Jews, and Jews are are a tough crowd. You know, they're either kind of just had a big meal and are nodding off, or they're kind of moaning because the parking was too far away. You know, and and Jews love criticizing and, and telling you after where you went wrong, or trying to work out how much money you've made as well. So yeah, performing on my own in my house is perfect for me. When you're when working. you're on tour, have you found it have you found it difficult sort of being out on your own there and finding you know the food that you need, the shawls that you want to go to, or the, or whatever? How, how are you? How uh, are you yeah. Well, I'm yeah. I I mean, I came back to the UK in March. Oh, I can manage pretty well. I mean, I've got an apartment in on the Upper East Side in New York. I mean, New York, yeah, it's the most Jewish city in the world. It's more Jewish than. Jerusalem or Tel Aviv, you know, so there's no problem with food, no problem with shawls, no problem with anything like that. And, and when I go around the rest of the U.S., again, the, the U.S. is actually a pretty easy place to, to, to be Jewish, for sure. And, you know, I'm looked after many of us in Australia and to New South Africa and places like that. And again, you know, I've always been very well looked after by wherever I go, uh, by the people wherever I go. You know, the, the hardest thing actually was when Imran and I were on tour together. We were doing our profit-sharing tour. We went to some places like Bradford, and we were like, staying overnight. And, and, and Imran would like order, what do they call it, like, Uber Eats or one of those Just Eat you know, services. 
and, and get some food delivered, halal food, very easily. But I couldn't. I mean, I ordered something from Just Eats, but they had to bring it up from Golders Green. So it took about five hours up the That's morning. a so. very expensive delivery charge. Absolutely. Exactly. By the time you got it, three you know, Well, I've noticed that throughout your, since you started off, you still look like you. I mean, you still wear your suits and you still wear, you know, your, you have your white shirt and you, you sit sit. Do you, are you, you, do you ever feel a sort of under obligation to look sort of really show busy and kind of glittery? Do you know what? No, my appearance is kind of cha- keeps changing and has changed quite a bit. Even I've only been doing stand up for a short amount of time. You know, people get so fixated with what people look like, not just in terms of performing on stage, but actually in the Jewish world in general. We're very good at putting people in boxes based on appearance. You know, I did a routine about this, about the different kind of uh, kippah, yamukas that people wear, that you whole kind of weird nuances that you may not even be aware of about with the rim and the color and the material and how many panels is there four panels or six panels we're very good at this we love like putting someone in a box do they wear a white shirt do they wear has they got a little pattern on it i'm not so fixated on these things so i you know what i i wear what i what i'm comfortable wearing and uh, that changes all the time and i i don't let i don't not concerned with labels and what have you Tell me, how are you, um, how's it going to go on Sunday? So this is going to be your first sort of performance, if you like, back, back in front of everybody. And back in front how, of people. How's, it, how's it going to work? I mean, why happens if people get a bit think, nervous sitting next to people? I think so. People, I've noticed or... that. I think people are nervous to go out. And I, I appreciate anyone who comes. I think, you know, great that you uh, want to do that and, and are willing to, I suppose, take those risks. Because, yeah, I, I think there are a lot of people who are still, very nervous about all these kind of things. So, you know, it's going to take a long time for people to get comfortable again with going to this kind of thing. JW3, they were really keen to reopen. They reopened their building, you know, like with this. And this was they wanted. They asked, you know, I'm flattered they asked me to do something to open it. And, you know, it would be fun. I mean, I think they have the main room there, the big main stage, which I've performed, you know, seven times I've done. There's 275 seats, and with the social distancing, they're using now, them all. They will, though. They won't be able to use them all. They can fit 50. No, it's like something like 50, oh my 55. lord, only 50. So it, wow. Yeah, it's something like that. So okay. Really, you know, so if we really miss you this time, out. where do we go next? Where? where well, are I don't we know. Going? I suppose after after Yomtev, I'll probably come back, maybe do some more there. But it is going to be a no. I th- I can see it's going to be a very slow process. I can really see that. Like Get the parents. audiences back in. We want theatres full again. We want we want lots more stand up. Look, it's of course we do. Of, of course we do. But yeah, my parents were saying the other night that they someone sadly had passed away and they were like attending a, a Lavoya on Zoom. And I said, like, you'd never want to go back to Bushy now though. You'd never, who wants to it's always raining, you can never park. You have to trek get your shoes dirty at the ground and now you just do it all online. And there are some things that you, you will become quite lazy. And won't want to go out again. So, you know, I'm good on JW3. If people want to come and see you on the 6th, how do they get tickets? The JW3 it- website. So, jw3.org.uk. And tickets are there. And I think they've nearly sold out one of them. And the other one's got some tickets. So, yeah, it was yeah. in two shows. One at 7, one at 9. They're kind of improvised shows. This is kind of stuff I'm going to talk about. And I'm going to see what happens based on questions, some of which I've already been getting. And uh, so, even if you've seen me, Loads of times you've not seen what I'm going to be doing on Sunday because oh, even I brilliant. don't know what I'm going to be doing on Excellent. Sunday. Excellent. Well, good luck with it, and Thank uh, you, look forward to it. And for the Thank for you. anybody who is listening, the event is called Out with Ashley Blaker. 
It's on at JW3 on Sunday, the 6th of September. So you haven't got long, but if you, even if you've missed it, don't worry, there are going to be other events creeping back into JW3. Ashley, best of luck, and thank you for telling us all about this on The Jewish Views. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. The Jewish Museum London, like so many other museums, had to close its doors on the 18th of March due to the coronavirus pandemic. However, being resourceful, they have taken to putting their exhibitions online. One of the exhibits is Your Legacy and Me, a creative project exploring the legacy of the Holocaust and created by the Holocaust Educational Trust's Young Ambassadors. Francis Jeans has been appointed as Interim Director of the Jewish Museum London and is my guest today. Hello, Francis. Hello, nice to be here. Thank you. Thank you for agreeing to come on the programme. Can you tell me what your job involves? What does Interim Director mean? I've been at the museum actually for a number of years. I've been there for about seven and a half years now, I think. And my previous role was Director of Learning and Engagement. So I stepped up as Interim Museum Director sort of right at the beginning of lockdown, actually, and was tasked really with steering the museum through one of our most challenging times. So my role really was about pivoting all our programming to digital, to virtual programming. And that's included our exhibitions, our learning programs, our public events, our membership, everything really, which has been a challenge, but it's also been incredibly sort of refreshing to look at everything that we do and how we can actually think about it quite differently. So one of those ways was launching what we've called the virtual classrooms. So usually we interact with about 20,000 students in the museum and we obviously talk about very complex subjects and we needed to find a way to do that through lockdown and then also beyond into next term. So finding a way to do all of that virtually so we can continue our sort of facilitated programming has been one of the hardest but also the most rewarding things that we've done actually during this time. The other aspects of my work have been around business planning, working with our funders and thinking a little bit more about what we want to be really into the next year I suppose because we're all expecting the year ahead to be quite challenging but thinking of ways that the collection that we have which belongs to the community has a space to be not just protected but available to everybody. So a lot of the work we've been doing recently has been about what are the best ways that we can bring the collection into the community? And you may have seen some of the, the information we've released about that, about ways that we're going to do that going forward. So it's been a nice way to try and connect back to the community during such a difficult time. And the exhibition we're going to talk about is just one of those ways, I suppose. Can you just explain about this particular exhibition, then, Your Legacy and Me? What does it entail? Yeah, so this was a project that was actually quite a long time in the making. It started with a few different strands. The first part was we were already running a project called the Holocaust Witness Legacy Project. And that was because we've worked for many, many years with a variety of survivors who speak to students at the museum. And we, like most of the community, you know, had our thoughts towards the legacy of that and how we were going to continue to work with students once that sort of first person experience was not possible anymore. So that project was doing multiple things. It was working with the survivors to create memory books, collecting objects, taking beautiful portraits of them. So we had that running along one side. And then simultaneously, we were having meetings with two partners who I was really keen to work with. The first was Jamie, the Jewish Community's mental health charity, who I think do phenomenal work. And I had invited them in to train up our staff to be mental health first aiders a few years ago. And we'd used that training in so many ways. And it really made us look at what we do with Holocaust education in particular in a different way. And then the second partner was HEPS, the Holocaust Education Trust. And I think they do fantastic work with young people in particular, but across all their programming. 
And we'd had several meetings before and we were trying to find the right kind of project that we could do together and then it all started coming together really with the year being the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz-Birkenau and we really wanted to have a think about how we could ask young people to reflect on this moment but also really wanted to help them look at the responsibility of being a legacy bearer. You know, whether or not you're Jewish, if you're responsible for bearing that legacy and passing that memory on, which a lot of uh, the young ambassadors do, there is a responsibility and a, a toll to that as well. And I think really reflecting on that and giving the young people a chance to think about the impact of that was really important. So each year we run something called a takeover exhibition where young people come into the museum, we teach them about why we have exhibitions, the importance of them, the different ways that you can use exhibitions to interact with your audiences. In the past, we've done one called My Faith in Me, and that was working with a group of interfaith young people from across a range of schools and colleges. And then we did another one last year, which was working with local refugees and asylum seekers, again, very young people. So this year, we decided we wanted to do something about this sort of moment in time, and we realised that actually this is the perfect time to bring all these pieces together. Het had the young ambassadors who were really keen. Jamie had all the expertise about the mental health aspect of it. And then we could bring all the exhibition and all the materials from our Witness Legacy project as well. Once we had all those pieces together, I asked my learning officer, Shireen Hunt, who's phenomenal at working with young people, to bring it all together. And it timed perfectly because we had the Charlotte Salomon exhibition which some of your listeners may have come to see. It was a phenomenal exhibition. It had the most engaging visual artworks and there was one particular subsection of her art where she had very beautiful images she had painted and created and then overlaid on top of that she used transparent materials and then on this transparency she had written the memories and the thoughts and the narrative to go alongside it. So you ended up with these two pieces overlaid with one another And we just thought it was an incredible way to think about the images that we collected from the survivors, their family photos and their objects with the young ambassadors overlaying their own thoughts about the responsibility of being a legacy bearer to create this sort of narrative, which then became the exhibition. So that's how we brought everything together, really. And then the young people came in and did a few workshops at the museum, either based on the idea of defining legacy and what that is, and then also about creating legacy. And we worked with the partners in different ways on that one. And I think, I mean, it was an incredible time. And I think the young people really had this sort of very open, safe space for dialogue with all of these partners there to support them, but also this chance of actually increasing their understanding of the emotional aspect or the emotional responsibility when dealing with these topics. The ambassadors go and speak to hundreds, if not thousands of other people as ambassadors. And we wanted to give them this time, I suppose, so yes, that was the exhibition and that all came together, really. How many young ambassadors were there? There was 15 of them. They came from a range of backgrounds, but they're all young ambassadors with HET. And were any of them or all of them Jewish or were they from different religions and backgrounds? From a variety of backgrounds, yeah. So I think both the, the Jewish Museum and HET work with a range of young people in schools and our work is actually predominantly with non-Jewish schools, I suppose, and I think HET must be as well with their numbers. Their ambassadors came from a range, all different backgrounds, all different faith cultures. They were all aged under a certain bracket, so it be young people, but I mean, yeah, a whole different range of people. Did you see any emotions in the young people, these young ambassadors? Yeah, it was because they were strangers to each other as well. So that's always the tricky part when you bring a group of, I suppose, any age of people together into a space and then ask them to talk about very complex subjects. And there is that moment when you think, I hope the group clicks. So what we did was we actually split 
the 15 ambassadors into groups of four. So they had this sort of very small group to work with, even though they were creating their own individual art pieces. And it gave them a chance to talk to each other and to sort of have that space to use emotional language. And one of the first things that we did was the workshop with Jamie. And Philippa Carson Jamie is an amazing facilitator. And she did a whole section just about how to use emotional language when talking about these sort of subjects and sort of giving them the tools I suppose that you need sometimes it's not always very easy to talk about that aspect especially when you're talking about yourself particularly with a subject like the holocaust you know there's a great deal of emotion that comes out when you're talking about the survivors and and the history that you're speaking of but it's been quite hard to then talk about the impact that has on you especially for young people I think so Jamie did a fantastic job bringing that out of them and the artworks that they created at the end were full of emotion, both in the way they created them and also the language they had used on top of them. I've got down four names of survivors. Were those the only survivors that you used? Yes, the actual Holocaust Witness Legacy Project includes a great many more survivors, but for this project we selected four from that group and then we split the groups into four. So we had the four survivors and then the ambassadors were in each of the groups. We looked at including many more of the survivors because obviously we have all this material, but we really did want to create some sort of shared experience for the ambassadors as well. So having them in these groups was really, really helpful. But there are a great many more stories and objects and photographs and, and all this material and all these stories that need to be told that we have available. So we, we need to think about how to use those in the future, really. Now, this exhibition's almost coming to an end. Are you planning to continue it in this way or some other way? Yeah, because the exhibition actually opened on the 1st of March and then, of course, the whole country went into lockdown, I think only, what was it, three weeks later, maybe less, actually. We had a great opening sort of private view uh, afternoon where all the young people brought their families and friends to see everything. But then, of course, we had to close the museum itself. So what we did was we moved that exhibition online quite quickly, actually, because we wanted the young people to have that experience of showing their artworks out and also as a way for us to use it, the exhibition with other young people, with schools in particular. So we had the exhibition move online, but we will be keeping the exhibition up in the physical space for longer than we had originally anticipated as well, because by the time we're reopen and, and people can come in, even then we'll be under a certain capacity number. So we want to keep up long enough to give everyone the chance. We wanted to come and see it in person as well as virtually, the chance to really. And how can people view this exhibition? How do they get online and where do they go? So we've actually made it really easy. It's our front page, the homepage of the museum, has a link directly on there to our online exhibitions. So you can go straight there um, and you'll see it on that front page called My Legacy and Me. And through that, you'll be able to see all the 15 pieces of artworks that the young people created alongside the intro that would have been on the information panels that go alongside the exhibition. So you'll be able to see all the young people's explanations because they wrote their own labels for the exhibition as well talking about why they had taken part in the project so all of that information is now up online you just have to go straight to the homepage jewishmuseum.org.uk the exhibition is called your legacy and me and is on at the jewish museum and online and we've been hearing about it from francis jeans interim director of the jewish museum thank you very much for taking time to talk to me oh thank you very much for inviting me it's been a pleasure you're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. This month marks 10 years since Rochelle and Alan Bernard tragically lost their lives after a car collided with them whilst walking in Bournemouth. Their three children, James, Robbie and Natasha, have decided to mark the anniversary of their passing 
by raising money to help those in a similar situation. In the coming days, they plan on walking from Bournemouth to London. Joining us now is Natasha Bernard. She's on the line. Natasha, remind us what happened 10 years ago, because you were there, weren't you? I was there. If I'm completely honest, that night is, is a blur. And I remember I was 17 years old and we were in Sandbank for the weekend. We went for dinner at a local restaurant that we'd walked to that evening. And I had a friend round and me and my friend left the dinner table early just to go for a walk along the beach. And my parents stayed just a tiny bit later to pay the bill, etc. And as they were walking home, just about a five minute walk away from where we were staying, a drunk driver hit them on the side of the pavement. Were you nearby at the time? Could you see that? No. I mean, I was waiting. I was waiting. It was a few hours had gone past, and I was waiting for my parents. And it was really weird that they hadn't come home. They're not people that stay out late at night. And I was trying to get through to them on their mobiles. They weren't answering. And at that point, I just wouldn't have assumed the worst because I'd have no reason to. And we had another friend with them rang me from a hospital and she she was very confused at the time and rang me asking me to get my parents to come and pick her up and at that point I knew that they must have been involved in an accident that she was involved in I called the local hospital and I could tell on the phone that I I was identifying my parents police officers were sent round to my house to tell me what had happened they came round to the, the house in Sandbanks. Yeah, they? yeah, and it was very much what you see on what you see in films when you see people sat down to let you know that a loved one had, had been involved in an accident and sadly passed away. It must have been very, very difficult at that time for you to take it all in. I don't think I did take it all in. It just felt so surreal. I was with them not long before that and then to have to make the call to my brother to tell them what had happened the whole thing just seemed so unreal even when i think now to that night it just seems like a film it's not something that you think would happen to you so did you have to telephone your brothers to tell them what happened or did the police go around locally to them in london no we couldn't hold them the police rang them but my middle brother, Robbie, didn't, didn't believe. He thought, me and my brother pranked each other all the time. I don't know why, but in his head, I think he would have hoped that it was a prank. And he didn't believe what happened. And I had to, I, I remember just crying, just telling him that it was true. Now, this is obviously something that nobody, you know, would get over even 10 years later. But nonetheless, you know, you must have, lots of memories, many of them happy about about your parents. Yeah, only really happy, to be honest. We were a really close family, and there was a big gap between me and my brothers, and we're, we're really close now, but at the time, there was a big age gap, and I spent a lot of my teenage years, I was living at home with my parents on my own, and my, my mum was honestly my best friend. 
So I only really have happy memories. They say that different people react to dreadful events differently. Did did you and your brothers react differently over the past few years? I think that our situations are very different. You know, my brothers did everything they could to make sure that my life at that point didn't change too much. Like I was, they wanted to keep me at my school and I was doing my A-levels and I think I had a lot more time to kind of take on what had happened and and, and have the time to breathe for my parents. And I think my brothers were very much forced into adulthood and being my guardians. And Robbie at the time, he was only 23, and he was deciding, he had just done his law conversion, he was deciding to just take that further. And he ended up going into business with my eldest brother, who was working for my dad at the time. And they just had to make it work. And they've they've done so brilliantly I think because of all of that and having having to take on so much they had a lot less time to grieve yeah and I I think only now 10 years later do we all feel at a similar place with everything and why why we want to help other people and did you at the time, did you move in with your brothers or yeah. were you some, because technically, you know, you weren't an adult yet because you were 17 and you had your studies to come and that sort of thing. Yeah, everyone moved home and we were all at my family home. Right. For the first time in a very long time. Ten years on, you're doing this walk from Bournemouth to London. What's the idea of that? There's a few reasons we're doing that. One being that I think it was important for us to go from Bournemouth to London because I guess the journey that my parents didn't make home. So we're kind of we're doing that journey for them is the sentiment behind that. But also because now we're at a stage where we wanna talk about all of those stories with their friends and other family members about my parents that maybe before people have tried to tell us stories we might not have been in the right headspace. It's a nice time now, 10 years on, to be able to hear those things about my parents and from other people. Yeah, almost closure in a way. Is it a sponsored walk? Is it in aid of charity? What we're doing is we've decided to set up a fund along with Norwood called the Rochelle and Alan Bernard Fund and we're working alongside Norwood to find young people who are in a similar position to us, with maybe less of a support system, with lots of parents or both parents, to help them, really. We found the time we were offered counselling, I think, but that wasn't what we needed straight away. There was loads of different things we came across, advice we would have needed, that we think now we're in a position to help other people using our experiences. And we know that people don't ask for help. You need to seek them out. And so that's why we're working with Norwood, who we know are in many schools and work a lot with young people to try and find these cases and do what we can to help them. Have you come across people yourself over the last 10 years 
have been in a similar situation to yourselves, lost a parent or perhaps two parents? I've never met anyone that's lost both parents. I've definitely met people who have lost a parent. And I think especially being in a transitional stage in your life where you need that guidance, it can be extremely difficult. You look for that support system and that unconditional love to help you through really difficult decisions. And the walk itself that you're going to be doing, is it over a certain period of time? Are you going to be walking so far and then stopping and then starting again the next day? How's that going to work? We definitely will need to stop because otherwise my legs will fall off. <laughs> so we're walking 105 miles, I believe it is. It works out at approximately a marathon a day over five days. And you're doing this from the 12th to the 16th, aren't you, of September? Exactly. Yeah, from the 12th to the 16th. How much money are you hoping to raise? Our target is £50,000. We think that that will be a great amount of money to really, really set up what we're trying to do. But we also, we don't want this to be a one-off amount of money we, we want we want this to be a partnership that will go on for a long time with norwood and i guess it's, it's all going to be trial and error and that's our initial amount is fifty thousand pounds for this time and if people want to find out more information about it how can they do that they can go on to the virgin money giving and type in the rochelle and alan bernard fund R-O- C H E double L E and Alan A L A N Bernard E E R N A R D Bernard. Well, best of luck with that. It's certainly going to be something a bit of a challenge, but nonetheless, you know, all done in in a good cause. And everybody here at Jewish Views wishes you, of course, and your siblings a long life. So thank you very much for telling us about your story, but also best of luck to you on that walk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. How well do you know your family history? Well, if you're anything like our next guest, I'd imagine you've got a fairly good idea where you come from. Jill Levy, who stems from Hertfordshire, managed to organise a family reunion like none other he managed to bring together 53 descendants of two families dating back to the 1800s. The gathering happened digitally for obvious reasons, and I'm delighted to say we can hear all about it now as Joel joins me on the line. Joel, how did you first get into genealogy? Because it's a bit different from your day job, isn't it, which I believe is dentistry. Growing up in South Africa, I was actually at a Jewish day school, and there was a combination of doing your family chief project, as well as dealing with things of the Holocaust. And on my mother's side of the family, uh, most of the family were killed in the Holocaust. So when I started doing the Holocaust project, I wanted to start collecting the names of exactly who got killed in, in the Shoah. And so I started off with a list of names, and then I wanted to know exactly how do these people 
connect to one another. So you can imagine, you've got a list, you start connecting them and making relationships, and that started actually creating the first family tree. How long does it take you to do all of this groundwork about your family? It has taken probably over 40 years. I was still a child in South Africa. It was in those days long before the internet, before home computers. So it was really kind of corresponding with people either on the phone if they were local in South Africa. But as a lot of my family lived abroad, it was through the old postal service, just writing a letter, taking a few weeks for that to get to either America or the UK, and then waiting patiently for a return response. So it could be a few months just to try and get the beginning of the information. Well, tell us a bit about the reunion. It happened over Zoom, didn't it? So with this part of the family being my King family who settled in the Bristol area from the shtetl of Poland called Wladowa, excuse my Polish expression, but they settled there in the early 1820s. Uh, there was a family and they had two children who were born in Poland and then they had another three children born in Bristol. They only had one daughter, and I'm descended, a direct descendant of that daughter. So since I've been in England for the last 30 years, I have spent a lot of time trying to track out the descendants of every single one of those five children. And thanks to the Internet and networking and things like Facebook, especially connecting with the younger generation, and putting me in touch with them and then working backwards, I have been pretty successful in discovering the descendants of most of those original five children who were born between 1819 and 1837. So I've been in contact with a lot of the people. Some people are interested, some people are not interested. And then what happened is I discovered this Ironically, having been born in, and bred in South Africa, is I discovered one tiny branch from one of these five children also landed up in South Africa. So I had not that distant family who had also been in South Africa, but we had never known one another. And then over time, quite a lot of those South Africans, just like myself, have moved to the UK. And then I discovered there were branches of that particular branch who were living in the UK who didn't know one another, and there were South African branches who didn't know one another either. So I tried to organize a uh, reunion of just that small branch of the family who were distant cousins of mine, but closely related to themselves. And then, of course, COVID came. So I couldn't do that reunion at my house, reuniting just a small branch of that family. And then we had lockdown, and then uh, Zoom became very popular. So I thought, well, maybe... We can uh, have a reunion on Zoom just with the people I was hoping to have at my house. But then I thought, well, if I'm going to do a PowerPoint presentation and tell all these people about the, the history of the family and my research of 40 years, why just show it just to one branch of the family? Why don't I try and see if all the people I've been in touch with would be interested in getting on board? And I never really expected more than maybe 15 to 20 people to come on board. And in the end, we had 53 people. And I had really representative descendants from each of those five branches. You know, after 160 years, 
I managed to reunite all five branches of the family, which, you know, I'm still absolutely gobsmacked that I was able to do it and that there was such an interest. People came on board from as far as the west coast of America and Canada, right across to the east coast of Australia, which meant that those people on the west coast had to get up, you know, at five, six o'clock in the morning to join the uh, meeting, and people in Australia had to wait until midnight just to join. But we were very successful, and the eldest person who joined was a 95-year-old, and one of the happiest uh, emails I ever got was from the 95-year-old who gave me the day before the meeting, Joel, I cannot wait to be Zooming with you tomorrow. So, uh, yeah, it was really quite amazing. Oh, that's an amazing story. Are there any plans to meet up in person when the pandemic is over? I would love for the family to get together in person uh, post-COVID, especially of all the family that live in the UK. I think that would be a starting point. It's, um, it's, it's such an unbelievable story that you found all these people. I mean, I've, I'm absolutely, I think it's quite wonderful. What discoveries did you make along the way that you didn't know about at all? The most interesting thing I found was that the father of these five children sadly was caught for being in possession of stolen goods. He was basically a fence. So this was my ancestor Moses King who arrived from Poland in the early uh, 1820s. And he was sent down, uh, as I said, for possession of stolen goods, namely a gun that actually had been stolen from, I think, a local reverend or bishop in the area, which was in Bristol. And he was actually put on a prison hulk in uh, probably in the Portsmouth area, I think it was. And quite interesting to think, he was probably around about 45, 50 at that point in time. And I think a lot of people were probably dead in, the, in their 40s at that stage, but this man was sat on a prison hulk for two years, from 1837 to 1839, and then he was sent to uh, Van Diemen's Land, which is now known as Tasmania. So that was quite a journey. So he survived two years on the prison hulk. Then he was sent to Van Diemen's Land. And sadly, just before he was released after 14 years, he reoffended. So he got another 14 years. So he was out in Australia for nearly 30 years. So you can imagine what effect that had on a poor woman who was not that long in this country from Poland, sitting in Bristol, trying to raise, as a single mum, five children. The youngest one was probably born either while he was uh, on the prison hold or probably just before he, he was caught. And that had a tremendous effect on the family. It's an amazing, amazing story. Thank you very much indeed for what you've told me. I think it's absolutely wonderful and all I can say is Mazel Tov. Thank you very much and thank you very much for interviewing me and I, I hope I'll be an inspiration for all people out there doing genealogy. Don't give up. Uh, just, you know, be patient. Do as much research as you can and for those people living in the UK, join the JGSGB, which is the Jewish Genealogical Society of Great Britain is a good starting point.
Although I'm sure that a lot of people are going to be so moved and fascinated by his story. Thank you very much indeed. You're most welcome. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Time now as we hurtle towards the High Holy Days for a bit of culinary inspiration, courtesy of Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips. Denise, what have you got for us this time? This year, Rosh Hashanah falls on Friday, and that's the 18th of September, so it incorporates Shabbos as well. This means all the cooking for the weekend needs to be well prepared and ideally complete by Friday afternoon. Large gatherings will not necessarily be permissible, but your family bubble may be able to attend unless, unfortunately, you're in areas like Manchester, where the more rigid restrictions are presently still in place. Anyway, ideas for Yonta Friday night. I like to incorporate the Simanim, which literally means it is the signs or indicators in the pre-Rosh Hashanah family meal in the form of a Seder. It is now quite popular, and years ago, it was only followed by the very orthodox and primarily with the Sephardim community. But nowadays, it's quite popular. Using fish, fruits and vegetables, these good omens for the forthcoming year are wished for. And the main ten Simanim are apples and honey, dates, gourds, pomegranates, fish, fish head, leeks, black-eyed beans, beetroot and carrots. And what essentially we're asking is for God to guide us and provide us with bounty, strength and peace for the year ahead. Many of the foods are blessed with puns on the Hebrew names that turn into hopes that our enemies will be destroyed. My new creation called Heavenly Roast Chicken is a family recipe which delicious yacht of twist roasted with honey and water and vinegar plus garlic and onions and fresh thyme and then baked with dried figs and garnished with fresh figs and why not make something equally delicious dessert is a salted honey pie the pastry is a lemon pastry and it's filled with a date honey eggs tahini and brown sugar so all those recipes, I must say, are all on my website, jewishcookery.com. And I really just want to wish you a happy and healthy new year, but one of meaning and purpose. And may your Rosh Hashanah blessings be with overflowing. Anyway, Shana Tova, best dishes, Denise. Jewish domestic goddess there, Denise Phillips, giving us some inspiration for the impending High Holy Days. And don't forget that for any more information on anything that Denise has just spoken about, you can always visit her website, which is jewishcookery.com. Time now for our rabbinic thought for the month, and it comes courtesy of Rabbi Charlie Beginsky from Liberal Judaism. I have a really strong memory of my mother saying to me as a teenager, or more accurately, shouting at me in total abstract frustration, you are just so bombastic. I remember it because I liked the sound of the word, and that even though she was clearly meaning it as an insult, I found it quite complimentary. If you cannot be utterly sure of yourself and your own rightness at 15, then quite honestly, when can you be? The memory comes back to me quite regularly as my own nine-year-old looks at me in total and utter despair and shakes her head. Her favourite expression is that she is always right. My mother said before I had daughters, may you get the daughters you deserve. Well, they say that history repeats itself. As I look at her, it's shockingly as though looking in the mirror back to my teenage self. 
What I wonder would have helped me as I discovered that being right was not always the most important thing, not to mention, and please never tell her that, that I am not always right. Many of you will know our Jewish story that tells us that we should carry in our pockets two notes. One that says, I am nothing but dust and ashes, and the other that says, for my sake the world was created. This is the challenge I tell my younger self, to find a way to balance these two extremes. When you veer into thinking yourself too important, pull out the note from your left pocket. But if you ever feel so knocked that you question your own uniqueness, reach into the right. Remember, I tell her, you have so much potential to act in the world, to change it, to improve it and to heal it. But time is shorter than you can know right now. So do not spend your time worrying about being right. Rather, be confident that you have a role in perfecting the world. This month of Elul is the period of time when we recalibrate, when we repair, when we adjust our views of ourselves and our relationships. It's that moment in the year when we are instructed to make time to concentrate on not being right, but on being whole. When we dig deep in our pockets and set our sense of self back on course. As the author Mark Matthew says, apologising does not always mean you're wrong, and the other person is right. It just means you value your relationship more than your ego. Thank you very much to Rabbi Charlie Beginski of Liberal Judaism with our rabbinic thought for the month. And that's it for this episode of The Jewish Views. All that's left for me to do is to say thank you to all of our guests, to comedian Ashley Blaker, Joel Levy, Francis Jeans, and Natasha Bernard. And of course, thank you goes to you at home for listening, as well as our producer, Sue Greenberg, who, as ever, has worked tirelessly putting this programme together. Don't forget that if you want to listen to this episode or indeed any previous episode of The Jewish Views, you can always visit our website, jewishviews.co.uk. And please remember to subscribe to us in your podcast application. All that's left for me to say on behalf of all of the team here at The Jewish Views, Shana Tavar, have a very pleasant and peaceful 5781. And we hope that you will join us next year. Wow, that sounds strange to say. Here on The Jewish Views, from me, Phil Dave, goodbye.